Pray with me. God and Father, as we learn now from your word, I pray that you would be speaking to us and building us up as your people. Be with us, though we are sinful. Help us to hear it and be changed. Be with me, though I am sinful, as I seek to proclaim it. Be with all of us in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Have you ever noticed how people can have radically different responses to the same situation? Radically different responses. I mean, it happens all the time in normal life. I think about like like when the letter from the college that's far away and prestigious comes in the mail. I know some of you have high school seniors right now. Maybe you've had the experience where you open the letter and you find out that the kid is accepted and the the kid is just celebrating and excited and the parents are actually kind of crying because they're sad at the thought of their child moving away. And we can have radically different responses in our experiences with God. When people hear the gospel, some of them hear it with joy and believe and others don't seem to get it at all. When a hard situation comes up in life, some people seem to flourish and be drawn closer to Jesus in it, while others become bitter and have their heart hardened. We can have radically different responses to the same situation. What makes the difference in those situations and how we respond to God? Of course, part of that answer has to do with God and how he's working in our lives, but in in a human sense, in terms of in us, what makes the difference? Really, in these two stories that we're looking at at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, that is the question that I think is in the background. What makes the difference? Because we see these two people who have very similar encounters with God, and they respond in very different ways. And so what we're going to do this morning is this. We're just going to first look at the two responses of Zechariah and then of Mary. We're going to look at the two responses, and then we're going to discuss what makes the difference. First, let's look at Zechariah. We are told of Zechariah, the time that this story takes place in the reign of Herod the king, who reigned up until 4 BC, and we're told that Zechariah is a priest. He's this Jewish man of the division of Abijah, we're told. And and just so all the details of this story kind of make sense in your head, the way it worked is the temple in Jerusalem, it was laid out, first of all, like the tabernacle, which you might remember we talked about when we did our sermon series through Exodus. And in the tabernacle and temple, in the in the building itself, there is this holy place and then this most holy place. And the most holy place is where God is pictured as especially present. You could only have the high priest go in there once a year. But then in the holy place, there were these things that you would do as part of the religious duties. But there would just be one priest that would go in there each day and do those things. And so Zechariah is one of those priests, and this is his turn to go in and do these duties in the temple. And look, there were 18,000 priests. They were on a rotation by division of which group would be available, and then they were chosen randomly for who could do it. So each priest only got to go into the temple and do their duties there maybe once or twice in their lifetimes. And it is Zechariah's turn, we find out. And we are also at the same time told that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth are elderly and do not have any children. And we're supposed to recognize from the details that this isn't because they're under some kind of judgment of God. We're told that they are righteous and blameless before the Lord, but they're childless with all the heartache that goes along with that. But Zechariah, anyway, he he's, goes into the temple and he is alone there burning incense on the altar and this angel appears to him. 
Angels in scripture are God's warrior messengers. They are these terrifying creatures. And so Zechariah is afraid. And let's read what the angel says, starting in verse 13. He says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you will call his name John. So first the angel says that Zechariah's prayers have been heard. And this probably doesn't mean that right at this moment he was praying that they would have a child. In fact, from his response later, it's pretty clear that it's probably been years since Zechariah and Elizabeth really even offered these prayers because they assume that that ship has sailed. But, but the angel is saying that those, those prayers you offered years ago, the sorts of prayers that any young infertile couple would offer, praying that God would bless them with a child, that those prayers have been heard. And that should give us actually a good reminder about prayer. We're not going to dig into that too much this morning, but when we ask God for things, there are times that his answer is yes, and there are times that his answer is no, because God in his wisdom knows better than us and will work what is truly good. But there are also times when God's answer is not yet. We can easily assume because our prayers have not been answered right now that God is saying no or ignoring them. But nothing could be further from this case. God works what is truly good, and he works it in his good timing. And so we ought to be diligent in prayer recognizing that. But that said, the angel then goes on to explain to Zechariah that this child that they're going to have is not an ordinary child. Uh, Luke um, 1.15 says that many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. So he will be great before the Lord, and he will be set apart. That's what that stuff about not drinking wine is about. And filled with the Holy Spirit, which for Luke probably means that we're supposed to understand this child as a prophet, someone who brings God's word to God's people. For 400 years, there has not been a prophet in Israel. And this angel is saying that your son is going to be such a prophet. And verse 16 tells us more about what he's doing. It says that he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now there's a lot going on there. Rather than go through all the details, here's what's going on. So in the Old Testament, there is this hope that God gives as the Old Testament story develops that he's going to send a Messiah, this divine king in the line of David who will bring God's promises to fulfillment of earth, who will gather in the nations and vindicate Israel and bring salvation. There's this Messiah, and alongside that promise of a Messiah is a promise of a final prophet that God is going to send to prepare the way for that Messiah. He's pictured like Elijah, the great prophet of the Old Testament. And this prophet's job was to call people back to the Lord and prepare them for the Messiah to come. And that, the angel is saying, is John. He is promising that John is going to be that prophet. So just feel the weight of that for a minute. Imagine you're Zechariah there in the temple. And, and think about it. One, you have not had a child, and God comes through this angel and says that you're going to have a son, even though you guys are elderly, that God has heard your prayers offered years ago and is now going to answer them. 
And two, not only that, but the son that you're going to have is the promised prophet that Israel has been anticipating for centuries. He's going to shake up the social order of things and prepare the way for the Messiah. How would you feel if you were Zechariah? Would you have a hard time believing it? He certainly seems to. In verse 18, Zechariah says to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. How shall I know this? That is a question of distrust and doubt. It echoes a question that often happens in Scripture, where really what Zechariah is probably asking for is a sign. Give me some sign so that I can know that you're going to do this thing. And we know that Zechariah's question reflected doubt because of how the angel responds in verse 20. He says, Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now there's some irony there, because Zechariah asks for a sign, and God gives him a sign. (laughs) He gives him a sign that this is true. He's going to be unable to speak until the child is born. But, but that is not probably the kind of sign Zechariah had in mind. It's, you know, it's saying, God, give me a sign. And then, you know, he sends lightning for heaven, except it hits you, something like that. So Zechariah is promised this miraculous birth of a son, and he doesn't believe it. And God still blesses him and uses it. But Zechariah also faces some consequences for that. And we're going to then look at what else the angel says in a minute. But let's, that's one response, that kind of doubting, disbelieving response. Let's compare that to Mary. Starting in verse 26, we meet Mary. We're told that this happens in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, and an angel comes to this virgin, and she is engaged to Joseph, who is from the line of David. And engagement in this world is a lot more intense than engagement in our world. It's a legally binding contract. Joseph or his family has probably actually paid money to Mary's father to have the right to marry her. But this angel Gabriel appears to Mary, tells her she's favored with the Lord, And she is afraid, just like Zechariah, but then the angel gives Mary this promise in verse 31. He says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So Mary is also going to have a son. And he will be great. John is called the great in the sight of the Lord. Jesus is just called great with no qualifications. And he will take up David's throne and have this never-ending kingdom over the earth. Which is to say that Mary's being told that her son is going to actually be the Messiah. Not just the prophet preparing the way. This child is going to be the son of God who is coming to bring God's reign and rule and God's salvation to the earth. Your baby is going to be the figure that the whole of the Old Testament story was pointing towards. So let's compare Mary and Zechariah. He is told, you guys are elderly, but you're going to have a child. Mary is told, you have never had relations with a man. You are a virgin, but you are going to have a child. He is told, your kid will be the prophet who prepares the way for the Messiah. She is told, your kid is going to be the Messiah. Mary's message is much harder to believe, isn't it? Here's Mary's response in verse 34. Mary says to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? Now Mary does ask a question, but it's different from Zechariah's question. It isn't saying, give me a sign so that I may know that I can trust you. Mary's question is simply saying, okay, 
Apparently, I'm going to have a child, and he's the Messiah. Can you explain how that's going to play out? So that's the difference between their responses. And it's important to say God loves both Zechariah and Mary, and works in powerful ways through both of them. But clearly, Mary's response is better. And we should want to respond to God the way she does. So here's the question I want to ask. What makes the difference? What makes the difference between those two responses? And I think the answer boils down to two deep beliefs that Mary has that are different from Zechariah. Two beliefs. The first belief is in God's power. God's power to do what he says, to do more than we could ask or imagine. Zechariah ultimately seems to be doubting God's power in his question. We can see that a little bit in itself. He says, well, how can we have a son? After all, we're too old. And even more, we can see it in the angel's response. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Which is to say, if I might paraphrase Gabriel's words, listen, you little man, I stand in the heavenly courtroom before the infinite majesty of the living God. This God who spoke and the world was created, he sent me this word to speak to you. That God is going to do this. Mary doesn't question God's power, but Gabriel also makes sure to emphasize God's power in his response to her. He says, first in verse 35, that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And then in verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now we might ask what it means that the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And I have no idea. But the point is that God in his power is able to do this. Our response to God's work depends in part on whether we truly believe that he is powerful and in control. How should that affect us? Well, put simply, it means we need to admit that we often doubt God's power, and we need to repent of that sin, and we need to learn to believe in it. First, we often doubt God's power. We do. I mean, there are plenty of times when I pray for things and struggle to believe that God can do them. And sometimes I think we actually don't pray for certain things because our hearts don't really believe that God can do them. I mean, the obvious example is praying that God would heal somebody. We can slip into this pattern of prayer where we pray to God that he would be with them comfort them and give doctors wisdom and give them peace and all of that stuff and all that is good and we should pray all of that but we pray all that stuff and we never actually pray that God would move and heal this person. Why? I think it's because some part of our hearts doubt that he can. Now to be clear in saying that there is an essential difference between saying God can heal and that God will heal in every situation. Some Christians fall off the wagon on the other side, and instead they they think that if they just pray really hard, they can force God to do whatever they want, and that is not the case. But God is able to do all things. He is omnipotent and sovereign. He speaks and it comes to pass. And when we doubt that, it is sin. It is the sin that Zechariah is committing in this text. And so we need to repent of that sin, first of all. We should be grieved by that kind of doubt. It is questioning the very essence of God. 
It is questioning whether he is on the throne. It is an affront to him, and so we need to repent of that when we do it, and then we need to learn to believe God's power, to remind ourselves of it and keep our eyes open for it and develop a sense of wonder for the times that we see it. One habit that I find helpful in doing that is simply paying attention to the world that God has made paying attention to the world, and seeing God's power demonstrated in it. So to say, first of all, God made all of this. When you look at the complexity of this world, when you, when you look up at the starry sky and you see these millions of light years stretching out in all directions over your heads, to look at that and say, God made that. And that is meant to teach me about how big and how powerful God is. And also to remind ourselves that God controls this, that that when the thunderstorms roll in and you watch those thunderheads coming and you see the flashing lightning and the thunder and the rain starts to hammer down, to say that is God powerfully moving in his control of the world. He's in control of that. When when we sit down and, and eat, right, to recognize that God caused those crops to grow and provided that food for our table. Creation should be a, a parable for us of the power of God. The more we listen to it, the more we're reminded and built up in that recognition that God is powerful. So one of the two beliefs we need to develop is in God's power. We're going to talk about the other one in a minute, but I want to go on a little bit of a rabbit trail that is actually tied into that first belief, because that kind of connects with this other question that some of us don't struggle with at all, but I know that some of us struggle with, so I thought we'd spend just a minute talking about it, which is the virgin birth. This account in Luke is the clearest of the accounts in scripture of the reality that Mary was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus. And there are people who question that. It is one of those classic beliefs that some people doubt. And so let me just talk through that. First, let me give you two bad ideas that some people seem to have about the virgin birth. One is that some people dismiss it because they say that it's just a myth drawn from other myths, and therefore it's made up. There are two issues with that. The first issue is that the sort of myths that those people use to say that these were the inspirations for the virgin birth, they just, they don't really make sense. So like probably the most popular myth that people say inspired the idea of the virgin birth was the birth of Horus from Isis. Let me just very briefly, here's the story there. Isis is married to Osiris, and her husband Osiris gets killed by the god Set and chopped up and thrown in the Nile, and she gathers up the pieces of her husband Osiris and sews them back together, but he no longer has a reproductive organ, and so she makes one out of gold, and anyway, she uses magic to bring him back to life, and then they make a child together, and that child is Horus. That is nothing like the story of Jesus, right? That is supposedly the closest parallel in mythology. And it is the story of a miraculous birth of a divine son. But beyond that, this is in no way connected with that kind of mythology. And more than that, this story can't be some sort of myth because of the timing of it. We talked about this last week. But this is about Mary, who Luke interviewed to write his gospel, This is something that happened in history as a person with only a few decades passing before it's written down, not something that developed over centuries in mythology. So the idea that this was just inspired by a myth, even though you might hear it on a History Channel documentary, just doesn't really make sense. 
And then the other thing that some people do is they actually try to claim that this story doesn't actually teach that Mary was a virgin when she conceived Jesus. And this can go in some different directions, but basically usually what they end up arguing is that Mary is a virgin here when the angel visits her, but then she um, has relations with Joseph and they have Jesus in the ordinary way. And that just doesn't make any sense in this story either. Luke makes clear that Mary does not understand how she's going to get pregnant, and that is because she understands the normal way that babies are made. There would be nothing remarkable about this story if that is what happened. No need to say nothing is impossible with God. All right, so with those two kind of bad ideas out of the way, if you struggle with the virgin birth, if you struggle with the idea of it, let me just suggest that this is the thing you need to consider. Absolutely, this story is about something remarkable happening. It does not pretend that this kind of thing happens regularly. That's the whole point of the story. But the reason that we should believe it is simply because we believe in a God who is powerful. If we believe in the God of Scripture, if he exists, then this is actually one of the least remarkable things that he does. I mean, if God created the whole universe, if he made the Andes mountains and came up with ant colonies and, and quasars and orchids and all the, the wonders, if he, if he created all of that by his power, then it is not at all impressive that he could fertilize an egg in a womb. Of course, we, some of us still struggle with doubts and questions about whether God exists. And I'm not saying that this somehow proves it. What I am saying is that if you say, man, the virgin birth makes it hard for me to believe in God, you've really got the cart before the horse. Because if you believe in God, then this is an incredibly easy story to believe in. And, and so, so it's only that prior doubt that, that causes that struggle. All right. Coming back then to what makes the difference in how we respond to God. We set a belief in God's power is one of the things that makes the difference. And then the other thing is our posture, our posture before God. Zechariah is not a bad man, but I think his response to the angel is supposed to show a hint of pride. He thinks that he has the world figured out. He thinks that he has God figured out and knows how he's going to move. Maybe he's even a bit annoyed at all of this. I, I can only imagine he's like, this is my my one day, the, the pinnacle of my career when I get to go in and do the temple service and God is coming and messing all of it up. Contrast that with Mary. Look at her response in verse 38. She says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be as you have said. That is a posture of humility before God. Pride and humility are often deciding factors in how we respond when God works in our lives. We exist for God, not the other way around. He made us to show forth his goodness and glory by serving his world. The root of sin and the root of pride is getting confused about that point and thinking that God exists and the world exists to serve us instead of the other way around. But the thing I want you to realize is that that, that humble posture, that posture of the servant, actually opens you up to receive God's blessing. It is actually a much better way to live and will give you more joy and hope in the world than if you try to make everything about yourself. I mean, we recognize that sense of blessing in Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife. She is confronted by the same impossible promises as the angel, and more than that, her husband has been struck mute 
which has got to cause some practical issues in their day-to-day living. But look at how she responds. She says in verse 25, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Elizabeth is humble before God, and therefore she is able to receive this as a blessing rather than protest against it the way that Zechariah does. When we take the posture of a humble servant, we are actually able to enjoy God's blessings for what they are. And when we don't take that posture, we often miss out on them instead. I remember some very wise advice I was given when I was in seminary, which is school for training pastors. My classmates and I were getting ready to go take our first pastoral calls to go look for our first jobs in the ministry. And one of the professors said this. He said, you need to remember that you and your ministry exist to serve Jesus by serving the church, not the other way around. And here's why. That's that's what we needed to remember, he said. He said this. He said, if you think that the church exists to serve you, then you're going to get bitter and discouraged as you start to look for a pastoral call because you're going to interview for these jobs and someone else will get them and you're going to be angry and you're going to say, I deserved that. That should have been me. And that will make you bitter and miserable. But if you know that you exist for the church and for Jesus, then you can remain joyful regardless of how that process goes. When someone else gets a job, what you can say is, wonderful, that person must have been a better fit for the church than I was. They are where God wants them to be. God will put me where he wants me to be in his good timing. He is the one that this is about. And that's always how it works. When we rest in the powerful working of God and humbly take the posture of a servant, we can rejoice in the ways that God is at work in the world, We will find joy regardless of what our circumstances bring. But when we instead try to make it all about us, we will become bitter and miserable because the universe just doesn't work that way. All of which is especially relevant in a time like this one. We continue to be in this strange, crazy season because of COVID-19 a season where I have no idea what the future will hold, where next, what next week will hold or next year will hold. All of our illusions of control have been stripped away. But this is the kind of season where we need to constantly be asking, how are we responding to that? That's a hard thing, but how are we responding? If we're going to respond well, we need to remember these two truths. One, that God is powerful, that he is in control even of this especially of this, that that he is at work, and I don't know what he is doing necessarily, but global pandemics and government policies and stay-at-home orders and even our own health or whether we will live and die, those are all things that are in his hands, and he is more powerful than any of them. We need to remember that, and then we need to remember that we will find true blessing in this season as we humbly trust in his power and seek to serve him. This time comes with a lot of challenges, but it also comes with opportunities, opportunities to invest in other people. I think a lot about like like parents, those spiritual habits that you always said, man, it would be good to do this, but I just don't have the time. You have the time right now to invest in those things. Or, or those of you that have friends that you've lost touch with or haven't seen in years, this is the excuse you need to reach out and see how they're doing. Conversations with neighbors who are starved for relationship over the fence, this is your chance to invest in people. And there are opportunities to serve Jesus in other ways. Spending time in his word, 
doing acts of mercy to help people out, praying. When the world is shaken up like this, we actually have the chance, if we remember that we are God's humble servants, to grow in those things. The question is, will we do it? How will we respond? Will we do it with humble faith, trusting in God's power? Because as we do, we will find even in this season the opportunity to rejoice in God's blessings and find joy. Let's pray. Father God, I confess that you are Lord of heaven and earth, that all things are under your good reign. Father, you are mightier than any force in this world, than any force in the universe, than any human institution, than any disease. You are mightier than death itself. Father, I pray that we would be built up in the trust that should come from knowing that you are powerful. Father, I pray that we would be encouraged and go forth in confidence with faith, recognizing that you rule over all things. Lord, you are great and exalted in the heavens. and We rejoice in this. And Father, I recognize that we are your servants as well. I pray that you would impress in our hearts the goodness and sweetness of living for your, jo- for your glory and enjoying you. I pray that you might be at work growing us in that sense of humble service so that we might see your kingdom advance and that we might see your blessings flow to the world. I thank you, Lord, that you work through people like us. And I pray that you would call us to be such people that you work for in this time and place. Father, I also especially pray for those who are struggling and suffering in this time. I pray that you would be powerfully present with them, healing those who are sick, encouraging those who are discouraged, being a presence to those who are lonely, and that you would encourage us to consistently and faithfully continue to be your servants through which you work in these ways, that we might be agents of healing and comfort, that we might be friends to the lonely. pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And now, friends, join me in the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray.